Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Remember when Apple introduced the 99 cent song purchase? Before you could get that on iTunes, the common wisdom was that nobody was ever going to pay for music ever again. But it turns out that everybody who was sharing music online before that was not an amoral thief. It's just that for the first time ever, it was so easy to find anything and to listen to it for free was so easy and much, much easier than like going to a store and buying a CD and much, much easier than any of the like pay solutions, those horrible early uh, internet pay music solutions, where they actually made it so much harder and less pleasant to be a paying customer than to share music and listen to music for free. Apple solved that problem. They found the right price point and they made the process of paying for it super simple, just a click and you get what you want. And I think it mattered to people like, yeah, like somebody's got to pay for this music. Millions of people saw it that way, and that created the online market for music and leads us to Spotify and everything else. So that's where podcasts are at right now. We are stuck at the pre-99 cent button era. And just like then, people today are saying nobody's ever going to pay for podcasts. You know, the people have gotten used to listening to them for free. The only way you're going to make money off of them is through advertising. We have been proving that wrong for years. Turns out that a lot of you do understand that somebody has to pay for podcasts. And a lot of you like the idea of getting ad-free podcasts in return for paying us a few bucks a month. But we have thus far been relying on kind of a janky workaround solution. We have been making you do quite a bit of work in order to help us. You have to go and remember the URL of where you pay us. You can only pay us in US dollars. Then you've got to like copy a piece of code and paste it into your app and a part of your podcasting app that you've maybe never even used before. And uh, a lot of people uh, have done that, but a lot of people is just, why would you take on a headache for something that you're already getting so easily and for free? Because I think for a lot of people listening right now, it's not about the money. It's just like, you're not willing to do labor for this, you know? And I understand that. But I'm happy to tell you that we now Finally, we have that one-click solution. A Canadian company came up with this, actually, and we're working with them, and it's gorgeous. It is elegant to use. It is smooth, and it is pleasing for the user, which is all I ever asked for. Go and check this out right now, because if you're listening to this podcast on a phone, you already have it. You have that button to click. If you're listening on an Android or an iPhone, the link that you click is right there 
at the top of the episode description, the show notes. It's not one click exactly, but we have timed the process and it takes under two minutes. Actually, quite a bit less than that if you use the Apple Pay or Google Pay options, but about two minutes with a credit card. You pay us in seconds and then bloop, it just installs a golden premium ad-free feed of this podcast right into your podcast app. If you're not listening on a phone, if you're listening on a desktop, it's just as easy when you go to canadalandshow.com slash join. I think this could be a big deal for us. I think this could be a big deal for podcasts, maybe as big as the 99 cent button was for music. Go check it out. Nora Loretto, writer, activist, joining me again from Quebec City. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be here. Nora, today we're going to talk about 12 rules for kicking your benzo addiction. (laughs) Oh, really? Fuck the police, (laughs) screams Ezra Levant. And the paid campaign to turn you against the Wet'suwet'en protesters. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Kelsey Wells, LJ Sloven, Patty Pegas, Sasha, Bruce Clorfine, Maeve O'Sullivan, Mitchell Hughes, and Isaac Gilbert. I am a BC park ranger and improviser out of Penticton, British Columbia. Uh, I support Canada Land because I love their investigative journalism and the information that they provide. Uh, I really love Archie Mann's show, Commons. And I love Jesse Brown's criticism of the media and also to his respectful nature, even though he sometimes does like to really push the button. Okay, so um, there was a very widely shared story from the National Post. I think it was shared all around the world. The headline was, Jordan Peterson's year of absolute hell. Professor forced to retreat from public life because of addiction. Byline was Joseph Breen. And just looking at that story, it it was a curious story filled with um, scientific information. (laughs) No, like like there, there's like matters of scientific fact were asserted in this story. Uh, we're told that Jordan Peterson is in a medically induced coma in Russia. He has been addicted to benzodiazepines. He has been near death several times. He's been suicidal due to a movement disorder called akathisia. And this was a paradoxical reaction to the benzos. It goes on and on. Like it's like a diagnostic medical science information. You would expect this to be coming from his doctor. He's got neurological damage. He's being medically detoxed in Russia because Western doctors are in the pocket of big pharma. And in Russia, they've got the guts there to medically detox someone. All of this like specific and technical information, all from one source who is not a doctor. No. The source of this information is Jordan Peterson's daughter, Michaela, who, beyond just not being a scientist, her scientific bona fides and credibility might be questionable because she is the leading public advocate for the all-beef diet, which I think any nutritionist or medical professional would probably find an abhorrent idea. Jay Rosen, a media professor at NYU, was just like befuddled by this news story. He asked me, he tweeted to me like, Jesse, can you explain this Canadian news? Like, is this a news story in Canada? What is this? And I was kind of at a loss. 
you know, and then to get into everything about the National Post's various conflicts with Jordan Peterson, you know, they mention in the piece that he's been a columnist for them, but they don't mention anything about this. He has an office there and like it seems relevant with this very strangely reported story that they have this complicated relationship with Peterson. You had thoughts Mm -hmm. about this news, Nora? I did have thoughts about this. I thought that that was a very bizarre article as well. Mostly because I think it's very clear that the National Post benefits handsomely by having Jordan Peterson write for them. They, he must bring in a lot of clicks. And I'm not sure, Jesse, if you've read any of his columns there, but they're like thousands of words long and they are often rambling and nonsensical things that you can imagine him plowing away at four in the morning um, while he's unable to sleep. And so it seemed more like, I don't know, PR from the National Post to just announce to everybody why he hasn't been publishing as much as he has been. And the fact that it ran uh, fully sourced from that bizarre video of Michaela Peterson. I mean, if you haven't seen this video, she's clearly reading from a screen because she stops every couple of minutes and and changes what she's looking at to read this highly manicured uh, explanation for where Peterson is right now. It became apparent that he was suffering from both a physical dependency and a paradoxical reaction to the medication. A paradoxical reaction means the drugs do the opposite of what they're supposed to. These reactions are rare, but not unheard of. For the last eight months, he's been in unbearable discomfort from this drug, made worse when trying to remove it because of the additional withdrawal symptoms stemming from physical dependence. He experienced terrible akathisia, which is a condition where the person feels an incredible, endless, irresistible restlessness bordering on panic and an inability to sit still. So my reaction... I mean, I I am not a fan of Jordan Peterson. I, I think that he has caused a lot of harm and damage to a lot of people, especially young men. And the way that uh, that Canadian media so uncritically just repeats whatever the line is coming from him is just it's it, it goes back to how he found his fame in the first place, that he's just this like guru uh, with legions of followers that can't really be criticized. Um, And not that I expect the National Post to criticize him, but, you know, I didn't really see any Canadian outlets pick up the news to try and deconstruct what Michaela Peterson had said or not. And so, yeah, I I said that I I wish that he lives in hell in perpetua, which I think is a fair comment because I'm a huge uh, believer in, um, you know, if you cause chaos and havoc on the lives of other people for grift uh, to make a lot of money, uh, yeah, you really don't deserve to have a life of happiness. Do I personally care at all about Peterson? No, not not at all. It's not someone he's not someone I think about. I want to return to what happened to you after tweeting that. And uh, I know that Ezra <laughs> Levant uh, kind of sick to his dogs on you. I guess beyond just like the curiosity of the story itself, which w- it would be really good if somebody else reported it out just so we know actually what's going on. If, if this is newsworthy, let's let's get the actual facts. I have no personal feeling towards him at all. We've reported on the movement around him, like, uh, you know, I found it, I'm much more interested in the this kind of phenomenon that uh, built up around Jordan Peterson. And we've done investigative stuff around his his practice as a, as a psychologist. I take no pleasure in his suffering. And I'm not trying to sound like a really like angelic guy here. There are plenty of people that we criticize on the show who I have a strong dislike for. And, and I, I, I might get a little bit of shameful pleasure out of seeing bad things happen to them. But Peterson, <laughs> like for me, is sort of a, just a neutral, like, I don't get a kick out of this. But I also feel like when everybody is sort of like sending um, sympathetic statements to him and t- taking this news in um, and wishing for speedy recovery, which is all fine and very human, but are we supposed to just ignore 
the fact that this is the guy who told everybody else to go clean up their rooms and everybody else should stop blaming the world for their disordered lives and who literally wrote a book called Rules for Life. Like he's going to tell everybody else how to live. Are we out of sympathy supposed to ignore the fact that that the guy who's telling everybody how to live like everybody else has a lot of personal problems and i guess this is really directed towards his acolytes your self-help guru your internet dad did you not notice that he's a bit odd that there was something off with this guy from the start you know and and you bring up like the national post like publishing these columns that these dream the violent fantasies from his dream life that i don't think they would have published from anyone else like everybody who kind of enabled this guy and revered him and put him on a pedestal did you not notice that he has appeared like emotionally volatile on the verge of tears as he shares his ideas, sometimes just completely dissociated, sometimes looking like he, he has like violent intent towards the person who's, who's interviewing him uh, often like just under this like gloomy dark cloud of foreboding and doom. And like, you know, th- that was like, there's this menacing aura about him throughout his ascent. And this isn't like me doing some kind of like, you know, really reaching analysis. Like he has said this. Like I've heard interviews with him where he's on some like chipper talk show and they're like, Jordan Peterson, you're a worldwide phenomenon. You know, what's next? And he's like, it will all end in tragedy. I'm riding a wave of chaos that I do not understand and it will all end horribly. Like I'm starting to kind of try to wrestle with like, has the world been kind of enabling and fueling someone who like really actually needed help themselves? Yeah, I think there's no question that that's what's happening here. But I mean, you've zeroed in on the hypocrisy of of Peterson. And I understand, I think, why you have done that. But for me, it's it's much more about his followers. Do you, Jesse, have friends who are fans of Jordan Peterson? I don't think that I have friends who are fans that I know of, of Jordan Peterson. Okay, the reason why I ask is because I have some guys in my life, friends of mine who really, really latched on to his ideas when they first came across him. And they're folks who are searching for something in their lives. They're looking for meeting. They're looking for order. And they they got all of that out of Peterson. And Peterson knew the power that he held and has over the people that follow him. I mean, there's there's internet videos of of like really disturbing interactions between him and some of his fans where his fans are like crying and begging him on stage to like bring him salvation. I mean, this is where I'm the most concerned because Peterson's message of of self-help go clean your room has been so sanitized to be sounding as if it's you know, it's just self-help. And in some ways, I mean, he's kind of the Gwyneth Paltrow for men, right? So you've got Gwyneth Paltrow, who is peddling really ridiculous pseudoscience uh, self-help to women. And there's a similar parallel to Peterson, except that the social conditions that, that we exist in right now have created very difficult lives for way too many men, especially young men and some women, because of course, Peterson's also got a woman following. And by offering them these analyses that they have it in them to to get past these problems that that it's just you know that the, the real issues are are the chaotic uh, dragon energy of women or uh, you know we need to have social policies or, or societal norms that enforce monogamy to make sure that men are happy and and fulfilled in the way that lobsters are when they are floating around in their in their cages before we're about to eat them. This is what is most galling to me, and this is why 
I mean, I guess this is where your hypocrisy line comes back. This is why I get so infuriated by his existence as a public intellectual. I mean, again, I don't care about his personal existence at all. But his, the existence that he lives as a public intellectual, as, as probably the most important Canadian public intellectual, his message is really dangerous and it causes a lot of self-harm to the people that, that follow him and it causes a lot of harm to the people in the like around the people that follow him. And all for what? So that he can make a ridiculous amount of money. That's the story here. I think it's fair to hold him responsible for capitalizing. It's not like it was just a, this incredible global fame, just sort of like he slipped and fell and became this, you know, really unexpected intellectual superstar. But holy shit, like, I think that no one's more surprised than him. Like, like you know, academia is a place where a lot of weird people, you know, toil in relative <laughs> obscurity. And something about the moment and, you know, Times YouTube created this thing that uh, he rode the wave. And I think he you could see his astonishment at what was happening to him. You can both hold somebody responsible for what they're up to and and some of the impacts of that and also feel like. I don't know, just on a humanist level, I guess there is a point at which somebody could kind of be beyond my compassion. But, you know, I hope he gets better. I hope he uh, <laughs> I hope, he, you know, maybe he has something to contribute that, that uh, you know, would be good. I mean, look, we're talking right now and uh, it's maybe an hour or two after the news broke that Christy Blatchford has died. And we're in this moment of like kind of public confusion as about what what should be said. And I know that, Nora, like what gets said about one's. I guess, intellectual opponents or people who you even find abhorrent, you know, is something that you've been forthright about and outspoken about. And you've absorbed like a level of abuse that I probably can't comprehend on account of that. And it's an interesting question, especially when you're dealing with people who like the truth was important to Christy Blatchford. She explicitly took issue with the hagiography and the uh, the glossing over of Jack Layton's legacy as she saw it mere hours after he died and now it's an interesting um you know public exercise that everybody's you know people some people falling over each other to kind of just present her as uh, as an uncomplicated hero of journalism some people i think who feel no problem saying their problems with her don't end because she's dead and the harm that she caused in their view doesn't doesn't stop because she died everybody dies and i don't know i guess i have complicated feelings about this and i i guess my <laughs> first thought is with the fact that when people die, other people uh, are mourning and going through things. Um, but I also feel like Christy Blatchford would want unsentimental good copy written about her, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, Jordan Peterson came out of his uh, Russian coma to uh, express his condolences uh, about uh, the death of Christy Blatchford. So I thought that was kind of an interesting tweet this I morning. I missed that. I missed that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think that we are very confused in society about death. And I have come to that understanding probably because I worked for the Catholic Church when I was uh, 18. I was the director of music and I played funerals. And so when you're playing funerals at the age of 18, you come into contact with death in a way that most people don't. And I learned a lot about uh, how weird people are and can be around mourning. You know, in the West, we're really bad with mourning. And we're also very bad with separating someone's work from who they are, right? Like the entire cancel culture discussion is actually a really difficult public grappling with how do you separate the individual from from their life's work. Anybody who's mourning Christy Blatchford or who will mourn Jordan Peterson whenever he dies 
because they knew that person, because they worked with them, they were friends or they were colleagues or they respected him, that's fine. That's private mourning. That's important. And people should do what they need to do. For me as a writer, as a critic, I look at someone like Christy Blatchford and all I see is someone who took way too much space in the Canadian media to erase the ravages of colonialism, to justify colonialism, to write racist screeds, to, to write not particularly well. Like she wasn't a very good writer. I, I, we can talk about some of the elements of her writing if you want to get into that. And in her death and in her life, I mean, it doesn't change. Nothing, nothing about that has changed. And I think what is just so telling is that you've got the premier of Ontario, who I think is a dick and whose political uh, outlook is to cause as much harm to as many people in Ontario as possible. And he's now doing the media tour uh, praising Christy Blatchford. So she has more than enough people praising her. She was never anyone who afflicted the comfortable in her writing, which I think is actually really critical for a columnist to do. And my opinion about her is the same as it was yesterday when she was not yet dead. So I mean, I can say empty platitudes like I, I hope for peace with her family, but I mean, I don't know her and, and she's not someone that I have uh, very much empathy for. And I don't know, this episode will probably get me some hate, <laughs> but bring it because that's all I get online. <laughs> I think that there's sort of like a, a gut reaction a lot of people have that like there's a cruelty uh, and an insensitivity and a lack of compassion and sympathy. Um, and I'm not going to really ding you for any of that because like, Honestly, like, I don't see my role in the discourse as providing sympathy or, like, politeness or decorum or protocol. Like, you know, no. come here if you want to hear people talk about stuff that they care about and, and try to actually get into the ideas and not demonstrate those types of social rituals. So that that's fine. It's just that, like, my issue with it is that that's a, a very neat and definitive summary of a, of a person's whole career in life. And my complication with Chrissy Blatchford, who's, who, you know, like, attacked me in her writing in a way that she couldn't even remember later— and the, the respect that I've at times really held for her is not out of any kind of regard for her as a writer, but like as a reporter, I hold in professional esteem somebody who I think had a code and believed that she was serving her readers and was a witness, was bearing witness to things and was going to tell it like she saw it, whatever people thought about that. And there's a tradition of the press representing people and people's right to be in the courtroom that mattered very much to her. And like, what can you say about a reporter when it's all said and done? She she tried to tell the truth. I, I you know, there's people who I think are more cynical than her and don't necessarily believe the things that they write. I think that she always believed what she was saying. And I, I don't want to. There's people out there who were legitimately hurt by her. And there are things that she wrote that I find unconscionable. But, you know, like Nora, life is long and complicated. And like there was a time when I think she was hailed as a feminist hero and politics change. And I imagine that both of us are going to look back on some things that we argued very vociferously and they're going to fall out of favor and we might even evolve our understanding of them. So oh, I, not I, me. Not you? <laughs> it's just, it's locked? It's locked for good? <laughs> You're talking about perhaps something that is, I think, generational, right? That, that we all interact with people at different parts of our lives and of their lives. And to expect someone who knows Christy Blatchford for whitewashing the struggle at Caledonia to have any sympathy or to give any space to saying, yeah, but she could put sentences together very well or something like this. I think that's unrealistic. 
Yeah, I think you're misreading the situation and thinking that it's only people who knew her personally. And she was beloved and apparently just a very generous colleague. And there's lots to recommend her in those personal relationships. But no, there's a lot of readers who felt like she was a, an honest voice advocating for them. And, and, and it's not simply people who knew her. When we're talking about someone who has died, the boundaries are a bit more clear because, you know, you've got someone was alive and, and now they're dead and people are in mourning and you should respect that. And I do respect that to an extent until that person's life has crossed into the public. And then, of course, that person's legacy and what they've said and what they've written belongs to the public. I mean, that's that's kind of what you take on when you are a public person. And that is what we are doing is we are engaging on these ideas. And so Jordan Peterson's ideas need to be ripped apart. They need to be challenged. They need to be confronted. And so do his his supporters. And so do Christine Blatchford's. I mean, her article, Toronto City of Sissies, is just such a good example of why so many people refuse to pay any credence to any of the good that her career may have, have created. I mean, she wrote, but holy smokes, I'm wearying of the male as delicate creature. I am wearying of men who are so frequently in touch with their feminine side. They do not mention me, have lost sight of the masculine one. I'm just plain sick of hugs, giving and getting from just about anyone, but particularly man-to-man hugs. I mean, what the fuck use is writing an article like that? And it's just so indicative of the kind of thing that is acceptable in mainstream media. You know, you try to write anything critical about how these ideas impact average people, how they change political discourse, and you're shut out of them. And so, yeah, I have a lot of time for people who are angry and who are bitter about how the mainstream upholds certain ideas, doesn't uphold other ideas. And if that gets expressed with not being super publicly sad about these kinds of things, I'm, I'm okay with that. You know what, Nora? I'm going to hear from people who feel like even just making room for you to share these thoughts is just like disgusting and wildly inappropriate. And I did so very deliberately. It's something that Robert Jago brought up with me where he said that like there is this exercise, especially in Canada, that takes place where people can have like absolutely vicious, vitriolic ideological disagreements in the public space or in discourse or in the culture wars. And then kind of shake hands and be like, well, that, that was all just sport, but we actually were friends or we belong to the same kind of class. It's a privilege, you know, or when something happens, like somebody dies, we say that all doesn't matter. That was just us doing our jobs. And now is the time for us to honor this person's contribution and who they were as a human being. And that gets asserted as kind of like a virtuous thing. But in fact, it's really an assertion of class, you know, and establishment that we have the power to do that. And there are other people out there who like actually were really hurt. The stakes were much higher. A lot of the things that Christy Blatchford wrote had consequences uh, in a way that it doesn't for people who it's their job just to throw ideas back and forth. So... At these moments when people most want to not hear negative things about the dead, I don't know. I I feel like there's room for that, too. I may have less complicated feelings about the next person we're going to talk about. And that is a person who uh, is responsible, I think, for uh, unleashing a lot of uh, public fury on you for your comments on Jordan Peterson. Ezra Levant. Ezra Levant, Ezra Levant. And he appears in a plume of... Um, I don't like to talk about Ezra Levant any more than I need to, but um, I think that he revealed himself in a way that because he controls his platform completely, he, he you often don't get to see the lie put to his posture as we did in this video. And I'm going to set up this video by explaining that uh, Omer Cotter was uh, invited to speak at an event in Halifax. Ezra Levant followed him to Halifax, ended up on the same plane as him and pursued him in the airport 
which it's a public space and, and Ezra Levant exploits full use of, of the liberties that I think people have to have to film and record and question people in public spaces. And then, as usual, I think steps over that line into, into harassment when he's yelling, this is a terrorist, this is an al-Qaeda terrorist. I think that's harassment. And that is what triggered the involvement of two police officers in Halifax. And uh, they basically allowed Omar Khadr and the people who were receiving him to leave and uh, kind of got in Ezra's face and blocked him when he was accosting Omar Cotter, and this is what Ezra Levant had to say to two police officers in Halifax. And what job is that? Keeping the public safe. Who was it? Whose safety was in breach there? Everyone's safety, sir. You're a goddamn liar, and you know it. You're a disgrace to that badge, and you're a disgrace. I'm proud of what I do, sir. You're proud of defending a terrorist? I'm proud of keeping people safe, sir. Safe from whom? So I don't know if that police officer knew who Omar Carter was and had an opinion. And I think that probably in his uh, saner moments or if it was a different story, uh, Ezra would be the first to say that you don't really want police officers to be making judgments as to who they protect and who they don't amongst the public. And, you know, but let's just state facts here. Omar Carter is a citizen and uh, is as deserving of police protection as any other citizen, regardless of what Ezra Levant thinks of him. What we heard there in my opinion, puts the lie to Ezra's law and order shtick, to Ezra Levant's uh, friend of the working man shtick, to any idea that Ezra Levant cares about anybody above his own ideological agenda. He called that cop a liar and a disgrace. And there was another uh, officer next to that cop says, and you're a disgrace. You're a liar and you know it. And that's how he talks to people who get in his way. And I, I uh, as much as I hate talking about Ezra Levant, I feel like that needs uh, to get noted. Yeah, his uh, memory will not be a blessing. Look, uh, Ezra is a horrible person. I have been at the receiving line of his attacks um, for many years, actually. Uh, he's made money off of me and off of the abuse that I receive. But I, I mean, I, it's kind of cute to think that, that you are really focused on that hypocrisy again. Like, oh, here's proof that he's not pro-police or pro-law and order because of here's this video. I mean, he is also a complete grifter trying to make money off of rage and off of what he thinks is the way to make money, which is to ferment a race war and to make a whole bunch of men very angry at whatever target he wants them to be angry at. And Omar Khadr has been uh, one of those targets. I mean, could you imagine being like you're a child soldier, you survive a firefight, you live in Guantanamo Bay for what, a decade, (laughs) a lot of that in solitary confinement. You finally come back to Canada. You get asked to speak in Halifax about your experiences and you got to deal with fucking Ezra Levant on your flight? I mean, that just seems really horrible. And the obsession that Levant and his followers have with Omar Khadr is just disgusting. It's so disgusting to me. And yes, Levant is a hypocrite. And Levant doesn't actually believe a lot of the bullshit that he peddles. But that's not really the story. The real story is that this guy is popular in Canada. He does have a following. And somehow... Opponents to Levant have not figured out how to properly confront him. And instead, he's just feels like he can do these things that he can call uh, someone a terrorist out loud in in a public space in an airport. I mean, 
I'm at a bit of a loss about what to do uh, with Levant. I wish I had the answer to that. But uh, there's no question that the damage that he's causing is significant and he needs to be stopped somehow. Nori, you, you said I, I'm kind of cute. I'm fucking adorable. And uh, <laughs> I... I uh, Jesus Christ. I feel like the thing with Ezra, like my feelings about Omar Cotter are well documented. And I, I, I think I feel the same way you do, that we have laws in this country about who is responsible for their actions and who is a child. And if somebody were to take my child and, and send them to a, a foreign country to be in a munitions factory building bombs or, or to put them in maybe the most dangerous place in the world, which is like uh, the target of a U.S. military uh, action, um, you know, that's child abuse. And the fact that it was done to him by his own father and not a stranger, that's no blame on him. He was a, a Canadian child uh, who was abused. And uh, anyhow, but Nora, there are a lot of people who don't feel that way and I, I don't agree with them. But when... Ezra Levant uses this cudgel of the Omar Cotter case. He's going back to a well that I think he knows nourishes him. And I think that the people who are on side with that and who can kind of dependably be enraged by that don't think that cops are uh, disgusting liars and uh, and don't think the cops are shaming themselves by doing their jobs. You know, you say, what do we do about this guy? That's what I do about this guy adorable uh, podcaster that I am, I want to bring to those people's attention this guy's grift. He does not care about you. He doesn't care about the working person. He doesn't care about average Canadians. He cares about his rage machine. And uh, that's why I want to talk about that. For sure, except let's go one step further. The attention that he pays Omar Cotter, this is not isolated. There are many, many people who have a lot of power in the Conservative Party of Canada who do the exact same thing. And so rather than focusing on Levant, I think what's actually more important is seeing how the narrative that he creates in this country deeply influences mainstream politics from ethical oil all the way to his uh, obsession with Omar Cotter. And that probably is for a future episode to get into. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now, and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. Nora, you know the drill. We have a thing called Duly Noted. What do you have to Duly Note? Yes, I would like to Duly Note an article that came out in uh, Global News by Brian Hill and Jamie Murocker. It is about news from the Immigration and Refugee Board and how uh, a woman came before the board with a very specific problem and the board uh, treated her pretty poorly. So, Jesse, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where, you know, you are worried about being raped. And um, if you're pregnant as a result of that rape, what do you do about the child? Um, This is something. Oh, God, I read this. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is something that a lot of people who uh, can get pregnant uh, have likely thought about over the course of their life. And so there was a claimant that went in front of the Immigration Refugee Board. And this claimant was uh, questioned by an adjudicator about why she chose to keep a child who was conceived by a rape. Because, of course, if it was actually a rape, uh, in the adjudicator's logic, this woman would not have kept the child. The woman says, you know, that she was against abortion and she she kept the child. Of course, people keep their children, their pregnancies for a lot of different reasons. I think that this is such a disgusting story for so many reasons. But the reason why I wanted to duly note it is because oftentimes in the press, we understand the decisions of the Immigration and Refugee Board as being good decisions, as in this person is facing deportation. The the deportation was ordered by the refugee immigration refugee board, and therefore it must have been made reasonably, that there must have been a decision that was based on evidence and that this person's claim is not not worthy of being a refugee claim. And it's just so not true in a lot of the cases. And here's an extreme example of an adjudicator projecting what they understand or how they understand someone would would operate in a situation of being raped and becoming pregnant as a result of that and then choosing to keep the child. It's just it's it's pure misogyny. And it is it is so telling that someone who can have this idea about life after being raped, keeping a child is making decisions about who gets to stay in Canada and who is deported from Canada. Yeah, duly noted. I want to duly note uh, that Paw Patrol is capitalist propaganda. <laughs> yes, obviously. <laughs> um, you know, this this was rage bait stuff that like, you know, there's just so many uh, like academic papers that you could turn into a, uh, a very clickable CBC story. CBC, does Paw Patrol encourage our kids to embrace capitalism? For some reason, this one academic's work was was like a news story. And I think the reason was because they knew that this, this would be viral. And I actually like, I got a lot of time for this kind of shit. Like the... Uh, the thesis in question basically is this like uh, analysis of Paw Patrol that uh, Paw Patrol basically has a depiction of the state. Mayor Humdinger and Mayor Goodway in the show Paw Patrol, uh, they're portrayed negatively corrupt and bumbling. And so the privatization of uh, first responder services, law enforcement, you know, you need the Paw Patrol. They're all good pups. And essentially <laughs> the whole thing becomes an advertisement for, you know, we like basically we're going to like privatize between a two tier system and, you know, corporations need to step in because government is bumbling and competent bureaucracy, uh, you know, red tape. Uh, you know, this is essentially a libertarian screed in the form of uh, of a preschooler's cartoon. And. This really, like, if duly noted is about noting things that need to be more widely known, then I'm achieving the opposite right now. What, where am I going with this? I want to know where is the CBC story on uh, the Smurfs and the communist propaganda? And that's not a good point because the Smurfs isn't on television anymore. And those articles were written like 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe the pig show. <laughs> What's it called? Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig. What? what, what do you have a, a post-structuralist Marxist analysis of Peppa Pig? Why is the dad such a fucking bumbling <laughs> idiot on Peppa Pig? There, that's the issue. Maybe I have an MRA, like, men's rights uh, approach to Peppa Pig. That, that maybe <laughs> <laughs> Please put me out of my misery and say duly noted. <laughs> As a parent who's never seen a full episode of either Peppa Pig or the Paw Patrol, even though my kids watch it all the time, I can say I will duly note this. Nora, there's so much we could talk about in terms of the coverage of Wet'suwet'en. The aspect that I find myself most motivated to bring up on this show is the 
kind of chronic and persistent and unexplored line of questioning where I've been hearing protesters and those sympathetic to the protesters asked to defend the protests because the elected chiefs are on board with the project. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's it's, it's like I don't understand how could you be against this when the elected chiefs in Wet'suwet'en have agreed. And I heard that uh, Pia Chattopadhyay, who is uh, filling in until they find a new host for Metro Morning, was asking a protester that. And then Matt Galloway, who's taken over at The Current, he asked that. And let's hear that question. That sentiment isn't universal through Wet'suwet'en. The elected chiefs support this pipeline. Hereditary chiefs like yourself do not. If you take a look at the issue itself, how divided is your community, do you think? And then he asked it again. For Coastal GasLink, though, um, that organization, that that company signed agreements with 20 other elected First Nations along the pipeline route. And as I mentioned, they have the support as well of the elected chiefs. Why why is that consent not enough to make this project move forward? And then he asked it again. We've heard from people in your, your community, and we've spoken with them, who say that they support this pipeline, but they're afraid to speak up because if they do... They would be called a traitor. They would be called a sellout. They could be ostracized within the community. What does that tell you about what's happening in your community right now, that people would say that? So Matt Galloway and I, you know a lot of other people covering this seem to like have a lot of trouble with the idea that not all First Nations people have the same opinion about this or the same position. Like It's just inexplicable to them. Like You don't ask this question of any other kind of protest. If people are, are protesting the government's environmental policy at like Toronto City Hall or, 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 or Parliament Hill, you don't say, but the elected leader of this country uh, has a different position than you on this. How could you be here protesting this when you're when the, that's your representative? That's the person who you voted for, or at least your community, the majority voted for. Who are you to say otherwise? And and don't you know that other people elsewhere support this? What legitimacy do you have? Like we don't ask that. We have a completely different standard, and it's not something that gets examined. It's just put out there. Like everybody listening should just understand that this is just like a really contradictory position for some people to have a problem with this. Yeah, I heard that interview this morning as well, and I had the exact same reaction as you did. Uh, It is an easy frame for Canadian journalists to ignore what the real issue is or the real issues are. The fact that we are hearing more about the division between traditional chiefs and band council elected chiefs than what this pipeline is actually for and what it's going to do just says it all to me. It just says that we have a a media that is predominantly serving the interests of industry. I don't know, I'm sure you caught this morning that that the current asked Coastal Gas Link to come on the air and they declined, right? Which of course they would decline because they don't need to get their own PR into our ears because they know that the CBC will do it for them, right? I'm listening to this as someone, yes, who supports the protests and and who supports the hereditary chiefs at Wet'suwet'en. I'm also someone whose parents had to cancel a trip because uh, Via Rail canceled their train yesterday. And so my kids were crying for 45 minutes this morning when I broke the news to them that Grandma and Nono are not coming this weekend. And I want to understand, as someone who's been, you know, directly, quote unquote, affected by the protests, why is Via Rail not making alternative arrangements for people to to travel on their routes when they're canceling? Why are they just outright canceling people's travel? Why is it okay to inconvenience average people so that we protect what exactly? So that we can protect a pipeline that is going to bring liquefied natural gas 
to a port to then ship it out to China. It's like, do you know what's going on in China right now with accepting international agreements for for energy uh, exports and imports? The coronavirus has changed everything about international trade with China. Uh, How is that impacting the planned exports of LNG? What are the environmental impacts of LNG? Matt Galloway this morning asked Scott Fraser, the minister responsible for Indigenous Affairs in British Columbia, why they're okay with with the LNG pipeline and not the Trans Mountain pipeline. And Fraser said it's because LNG is not transporting Dilbit, uh, the oil that comes from the tar sands. It's liquefied natural gas, and so it's okay. And Galloway was like, oh, okay. Rather than saying, sorry, Scott, um, you know that the methane that is released from LNG pipelines uh, is also a giant environmental problem. There's This is completely absent. And instead, we're focusing on divisions within uh, an Indigenous community along the pipeline. Why is that? It's because in Canada, everything in the mainstream press has to be reported through the analysis of colonialism, which says that these people just can't get their shit together. They just can't figure it out. They've, they've got competing uh, leadership. They're so dysfunctional. And, and it's like, yeah, that is so not the issue. Why are we focusing on that? Well, we know why we're focusing on that. And it is enraging and confounding to me. Well, let me take that apart a little bit. There's a few pieces to it. Uh, first of all, the idea that um, LNG doesn't want to influence opinion directly. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. The Georgia oh, no, Strait, they, they have other ways to do it. They don't yeah, need to so, go and be interviewed by Matt Galloway. So Charlie Smith at Georgia Strait has been writing about this. that uh, And this idea of division within Wet'suwet'en is uh, kind of like a point of propaganda that is being erroneously reported. There's this account, Canada Action, that the Georgia Strait uh, brought attention to. That is spreading, you know, a video that supposedly shows a chief who, you know, like th- this idea that Wet'suwet'en is actually in favor of this and that, like, maybe these protesters aren't even Wet'suwet'en, maybe they're not even First Nations, they're, they're, they're not legitimate, Wet'suwet'en is in favor of this is expressed through this video. Helen Michelle, uh, who is uh, presented by this Canada Action Twitter campaign as a Wet'suwet'en hereditary chief. There is some dispute about that. And this is like, who is behind this account? And why is it so important for Canadians? Like, it's like, for some reason, it's important to be giving people the idea that they can just kind of shrug off that there actually is legitimate disagreement about this. So I think they do care very much about popular opinion. And you bring up some things uh, in, in a global context. There's, there's a lot of like pressure on LNG and on Shell to get this fucking thing moving uh, because of the collapsing price of, of fossil fuels right now and, and the effect the coronavirus uh, crisis is having. Like, there's a lot of moving pieces that where Canadian popular opinion rests is actually really pivotal. You ask the question of, like, why is the media looking at it through this specific lens? I think that that, Nora, is because... If you actually, and and what I'm hearing from a lot of listeners and readers is like, can someone just explain to me who does represent Wet'suwet'en? And that is a question that like is not, I think you can find explainers uh, looking into that through mainstream press, but it's it's something that you kind of have to dig a little bit to get, and it's usually not included in analysis. And the thing is, if you want to get into that, what you're actually getting into is the imposition through the Indian Act of the elected band council system, which is itself an assertion of the state of Canada, like and, and, and is in various different it plays out in some places where it is working out well, in other places it's not working out not as well as rejected. And the fact that that is a point of contention and controversy is itself bringing into question the legitimacy of Canada. And if you want to get into who represents Wet'suwet'en and what is Wet'suwet'en, like you're getting into like, well, this is unceded territory, which our own courts 
have acknowledged, like, if you actually want to explore these issues, there is a pretty legitimate point of view, which I'm not taking a position on, but this is what you would have to explore, that this is not Canada and that this is like a, a militarized occupation and that that then kind of points you back to Trudeau talking about nation to nation. So this is why I keep saying that this is the biggest story in Canada right now, if we actually want to talk about the real stakes of this and why this is the crux, this is the, the, the flexion point where people are taking to protest around the country. The way that that gets downloaded, like, you know, the National Post's headline today, A1, mob rule has to end. And Nora, you bring this up too, that all we kind of get discussion about is the inconvenience of train routes being, uh, and you're kind of misreporting about exactly what's going on. But like, Back to this Canadian naivete where I think a lot of people are sympathetic to First Nations, sympathetic to Wet'suwet'en even, but up until the point where they are mildly inconvenienced. And this idea that protest is okay until it disrupts, but that's how protest works. So there's some like basic concepts that it seems like there's a reluctance to just explain. I'm not even talking about taking a side on them, but just to explain like, yeah, the protesters are trying to disrupt things. That's how things change. Like, that's how protesting has worked since protesting began. Yeah. Although I have to push back a little bit on the idea that, you know, Canadians are OK with protest until they're impacted by it. I, I've actually been really impressed to see how many people who have been impacted by these protests and are still supporting them. I think that there's a myth that uh, people uh, are angry by being inconvenienced. And therefore, you know, we can't undertake any civil disobedience that inconveniences other people because you will lose the message or you'll lose your supporters. But, you know, you could look at this. You could also look at the Ontario teachers strike right now where there's been several days of strike where people have been deeply inconvenienced. And still the public message seems to be more on the side of the teachers than it is on the side of the government. And I think I'm seeing kind of a similar thing. The, the, the angriest people against what's happened at Wet'suwet'en that I've seen online anyway have been journalists. Hey, that's your Canada Land Shortcuts. Nora, thank you. Thanks for having me. Quick reminder that we have an elegant new solution to supporting us with five bucks a month Canadian and getting ad-free podcasts. That is the first link. Just click through on your show notes, episode description if you're listening on a smartphone or go to canadalandshow.com slash join. It takes just a minute. Email me about the show at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read what you send me. We're on Twitter at Canadaland. Where can people find you, Nora? You can find me anywhere there's controversy online. (laughs) Our website is canadalandshow.com. Really interesting conversation, argument between Jen Gerson and Sandy Garasino this week about the future of conservatism and the Conservative Party in Canada. You'll want to listen to that. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. 